Welcome to the ISA Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This is Dr. Tom Smiley at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory with this month's installment of the ISA podcast series. This series is brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. This podcast series offers full-length educational talks by the world's top researchers, educators, and practitioners helping you to keep up to date with developments in the arboricultural industry. Today's talk is by Neil Thyssen, a senior business consultant with Able Business Consulting, Inc. He has more than 30 years experience working with businesses and has served as president for several international and industry associations, including the Utility Arborists Association. This podcast features his talk, A Unique Forest Service. It was originally presented at the ISA International Conference in Parramatta, Australia in July 2011. So the, the conflict is about uh, the government agencies had traditionally paid for all the firefighting in our province. So any fires that were caused, regardless of what the cause, the government paid for the fire suppression and, uh, and the legal liabilities will be where they be if it was caused by by a reckless camper, then they tried to find the camper and they tried to, to dig a few dollars out of him, which didn't come anywhere near paying for the fires. So costs were escalating. The provincial governments were getting really concerned about the number of fires, the frequency of fires, as well as the increasing cost of suppression of the fires. So we ended up with a situation where, where budgets were getting restricted and they started to look at other sources of income to help with these fires. And of course, the utilities were, were a target because we do have utility lines running all through the forested area as well as the ag land. So you, forestry had a little problem with the utilities because other than the original construction agreements and easements, they didn't have good visibility of what kind of maintenance practices we were doing. Uh, many of the district forest officers had no clue what we were doing. Half the time, often, didn't know when we were even doing work in their areas. Uh, we had easements. We went ahead and just did the work. So communications weren't the best, uh, for sure. And the investigations from one forest district to another forest district, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, were always different. There are different interpretations of the regulations, different interpretations of what compliance was, uh, different application of the regulations in every district we went. Some didn't care, some applied it to the letter of the law. So the, it's the old argument of who owns these trees. Well, it was pretty clear to us in the, in the utility business that on our easements, on the rights of way, that we own the responsibility if fires occurred from trees growing into the line or falling into the line on our, on our easements, it's always been clear that's our responsibility. I don't think the utilities anywhere have ever shirked that. 
The issue has always been these darn trees that Nelson talked about earlier that are on the outside, and these are the ones that always cause us the grief. So if they fall in outside of our easement or right away, we've never felt obligated to pay for any fire suppression. Our senior management and the utilities were very, very clear with us in the right-of-way group that those are the government trees and we are not negotiating anything around fires caused by their trees, right? So does that sound familiar to some? Yeah, of course. And they're government trees or they're somebody else's trees they are not utility trees. So a big stumbling block when you're trying to negotiate who's going to pay for fire suppression. So most of our right-of-ways in the forested areas uh, have adjacent forest to it. Some of it is not capable of striking the power line as, uh, from the outside of our right-of-way, but a lot of cases we had situations like this where these trees here could clearly contact the line if they failed. So incidents like this we would pick up on air patrols or ground patrols quite often uh, after the fact. Uh, the odd time we picked it up at the time of the incident because it would land on the line and cause a fire and or cause an outage. So the real pressure about 20 years ago were fires that started to cost 40, $45 million to suppress and the government said well gee we don't have the money for that so let's go after the utility so a 40 million dollar fire really sparked the need for us to get a handle on on who's going to pay for these fires in this particular fire there was a tree that had contacted the line from nine meters off of our easement and uh, i can tell you that there's no utility in our country that was prepared or willing to go ahead and just write a check for that without a big battle. So it did end up in a, in a, in a legal battle. Uh, and the government ended up paying for most of it anyway because the precedent had been set that they paid for fire suppression. Well, often these trees are not picked up on our normal patrols. A lot of the air patrols are done, or a lot of the patrols are done by air. You can't necessarily see dead, diseased, dying, leaning trees necessarily that well from a helicopter. Even ground patrols, we weren't picking up a lot of the off-right-of-way adjacent tree issues. If there was a dead, dying, diseased, leaning, big old ugly tree on the side of the right-of-way, uh, we did pick them up, but not, we did not purposely go out there looking for those off-right-of-way trees necessarily prior to the agreement. Um, same issues as we heard earlier, um, forestry department restricts us how, how wide of a right-of-way and how much of a right-of-way we can have in the first place, so if fires are caused by, by trees that we would have normally liked to have taken out of there in the original construction, uh, again, another reason why senior management didn't feel very obligated to pay for fires. And. It sounds like what I heard this morning again is the same issues is that every government agency has a different interpretation on what's a good thing to do when it comes to power line rights of way. Fish and Wildlife didn't want us to do anything. They like us just put poles in the ground and move along and not disturb anything. 
The land use people in the provincial parks have a standard and a different interpretation about what a right-of-way should look like for a power line. The federal government parks in our area have a completely different interpretation. They want screens and they want all kinds of beautification things done that are as much of a hazard as anything on or off the right-of-way that we have. Uh, the wildfire people want it all tree-free. The uh, forest management areas that are under contract for logging and that, they don't want you to take a single tree down. That, and if we do, we have to give them back another tree somewhere else. So there's a real terrible conflict. None of these groups, by the way, prior to these, this agreement, were actually talking to each other in a common language with a common understanding to really try to achieve what was we're trying to achieve as, uh, as a power utility, and that's to keep the lights on at the other end of the line. Uh, inconsistencies within the Forest Service were very significant. Uh, some of the areas insisted on a lot of communication from stakeholders within the forest area. Others couldn't have cared less if any of us talked to them. They just said, go ahead and do what you got to do and get out of here. So again, the, the conflict really started with who's going to pay for the fires. The Forest Service, when we first started sitting down and talking to them, this was not an easy conversation. They didn't want to talk about this. They just wanted to abide by the regulations and send bills to the utilities. And when you come right down to it, who are the ratepayers for the utilities? They're the public who pay, also pay the taxes. So it's the same people paying for this mismanagement of people not talking to each other. So we really felt committed and felt very strong about the need to get something that works for everybody, and that is to reduce the frequency of fires and reduce the, the severity of the fires. So whatever we had to do collectively, we're doing the right thing for the public, the utility and the forest service. The utility was pretty animate about the fact that they wanted whatever we we're going to do and negotiate had to be at a reasonable cost. We weren't going to do or enter into any agreement at all costs. We weren't going to spend double our budget just to satisfy some government requirement. So they wanted to make sure it was going to be cost effective. They wanted something that was defendable to the regulators who end up agreeing to the rates that were going to be paid. And we really felt it had to be consistent within forest districts. We, we were not satisfied with having the inconsistency within the forest districts. So whatever plan we had in place had to work for the whole system, not just parts of the system. And uh, the original Forest Service goals, and they still remain this today, are basically one of enforcement engineer your problems away right off the bat and then you don't have to worry about all this stuff. Well, that's all good. If you were consistent within the government departments, that's pretty easy, but they weren't. So that one's not that easy to follow. And education is kind of way down the list, but their number one role, even to this day, is enforcement. Here's what the regulations are. We're here to enforce it. And our guys don't come in with guns, Nelson, but they do come in. So the big, the big thing is they're, they're, they see their role in life as, as the enforcer, and the utility sees their role. This is no different than any utility anywhere around the world, is 
We're, out, we're looking for reliable service at a reasonable cost and public safety. Um, and of course, they're trying to limit their liability for their stakeholders and or shareholders. So once we got some of this fluffy stuff talked about and the inconsistencies talked about, uh, in a, over a period of six months, we actually got down to some meat and potatoes and started talking about things that we needed to do to move this agreement forward. There was not agreement that we were going to have an agreement to start with. Let, let me be clear about that. Um, it's the utilities and us that were pushing that we needed an agreement. They weren't really all that keen on having these conversations. They finally got engaged. And, and what helped engage them was the fact that this agreement would help make a responsible program that the Forest Service and the public could live with as well as a utility. And if we can reduce the frequency and the severity of the fires, then it's a win-win. And when they saw that as a possibility, they got serious about communicating with us and trying to put this together. One of their concerns was that users of the forest weren't aware of the risks and, and often a lot of the equipment that we use in our right-of-way management uh, are very capable of causing fires and our, our sales and our contractors, our construction contractors and our right-of-way contractors weren't necessarily well prepared or educated about the risks to the forest and, the, and how, the damage that we can do in terms of starting fires. And even if we did start a fire, did we do the right thing to mitigate that fire until the Forest Service could be called in? And the answer to those prior to this agreement were probably not in many cases. Poor communications, often the Forest Service didn't even know we were there. Utilities were very concerned about this this issue about who owned the trees, their, their, their concern about the original construction, sorry, here we'll go back, the original construction restrictions that the Forest Service put on us. Uh, limited funds and certainly nobody had money in their budget for fighting fires, for fire suppression costs at all. No budget in any of the utilities, and there's four or five fairly significant utilities in our province, and there was no budget for any of it. So here's where we started to really get serious about, we, we had agreed that there's something good could come out of this, and it was gonna, could result in a win-win for everybody. And once we had finally got to that place, we were able to to start to put down about a half a dozen items that we needed to get serious about. One of them was this issue of definitions about a danger tree and a dangerous tree, and everybody in most jurisdictions has their own definition. And it's not important that it's the right or the wrong one. It's important that in our negotiations that we agreed on what, what it was. So a danger tree had to mean the same thing to the Forest Service as it did to us. A dangerous tree had to mean the same thing to them as well as us. And a hazard tree had to mean the same thing. And it didn't before because every, everybody had their own interpretation. Signatures, who was going to make this binding enough and legal enough so that if there was a, a fire and a dispute 
that the signatories of this agreement uh, had to be at a high enough level in the organizations to make it stick. So in the case of the utility, it was a vice president or his designate or her designate. And in the government, it was a deputy minister of forestry or his designate. So that's pretty, pretty high up in the organization. Um, one of the criteria that we needed to really talk about is what does this limited liability thing mean? What is it? How do, what do we mean by limiting liability? What's the scope of that liability? And what are the things we're going to have to do? What are the standards that we need to follow in order to, to uh, benefit from this limited liability? What are the Forest Service's responsibilities to this agreement? Uh, it's interesting enough that they, they wanted to have a lot of say in what was going on and how it was going to go on and when it was going to go on and who it was going to go on with, but they did not want any liability. So that's an interesting conversation to have with a government agency. So they want to have kind of control, but not enough so that they're liable. So there's a really fine line there. The uh, one thing we did achieve over a year and a half of negotiating was we started to build some trust in these folks and they started to build some trust in us that we actually knew what we were doing and we trusted they knew what they were doing. And we built some pretty good relationships at the management level uh, so that we were able to roll this out to our, our senior management in the utility and they to their senior bureaucrats. Uh, the scope of the right-of-way management plans were a very significant part of the negotiations because this is where the, the money issues start to come up, the budgeting issues that are necessary to maintain this agreement. So if you get your scope where everything's going to be tree-free, your budgets are going to quadruple. If you get the scope uh, beyond its existing budget limits, we're going to have to go back to the regulators to get rate, rate approved. So, other things, the, the approval and, and uh, appeal process that was put in place was fairly basic. Uh, the approval process was going to be done at the district level of the Forest Service, and the overall signature of the agreement would be accumulation of all of the district manager's approvals. The appeal process was was pretty simple. We go back to the district that we had the original agreement with if we had to, if we had issues with their, with their approval or disapproval. So it worked out pretty simple at the field level. Senior management were basically signatories to the thing after it was all done at the field level. So again, I, I don't think it really, it's not that important that everybody in this room agreed what a danger tree is or a hazard tree is. The important issue is that when you're negotiating with Forest Service that you're talking about the same kind of a tree. Uh, the primary trees that of concern in this agreement were the danger tree, the trees that could contact the power line, and the hazard tree. The standing tree, the visible defects, the ones that Nelson talked about earlier, the ones that are obvious that are, that are going to be a hazard to the tree and, and can cause us grief, on or off the right-of-way. We don't have these kinds of trees on or right-of-way if we're being responsible about our vegetation management plan in the utility to begin with. So what we're talking about here is these trees are off right-of-way. 
the danger tree and the danger and the hazard tree. Is that similar to most? Yeah. So just a common understanding of what we're talking about with these trees. A lot of the areas we're able to have a, a tree free right away serving fairly major gas plants and oil and gas facilities and, and uh, lumber areas, logging areas like that, we're able to get pretty good right-of-ways. Uh, there's other areas where we're very, very limited in right-of-way and these are the areas we end up with the grief with the hazard trees. So this would be a, a hazard tree off right-of-way, a typical tree that we would have to, we would have to plan around doing something with over a period of time. Now, I mentioned we air patrol our transmission lines annually, like most, like a lot of utilities do. The distribution folks had traditionally not done annual patrols, uh, and the distribution, of course, has a narrower right-of-way, so therefore they've got all kinds of, they've got even more grief with hazard trees and danger trees than the transmission companies. So, so at the end of the day, <clears throat> we agreed that the utility would provide an annual patrol identifying those hazard trees, those danger trees and hazard trees that were, that were off of right-of-way. We would identify these trees, we'd mark those trees, and within five years, we would do something to remove those trees. So we had a five-year window to actually do the work. A one, we do an annual patrol, and within five years, anything on that annual patrol needs to be taken care of. And if it is, within that five years, within that agreement, then our liability is limited. And I'll explain later what that really means in dollars and cents. So over time, what we end up with then is a four-year history of danger and hazard trees and a one-year plan for next year. So we have a plan for a year ahead of us and a four-year history where we've actually completed the plan, the approved plan that was approved by the Forest Service. We agreed to a reporting protocol so we would keep them informed on what that plan was. They would approve the plan. We would go execute the plan over the next five years. If there was imminent da danger in, in areas where there's high winds, high fire risk, etc., they would help us prioritize where those areas were going to be, where they'd like us to focus. So we'd work together to determine what their priority areas were outside of maybe our normal patrolled areas. We would also report progress over that five years on how we're doing it, getting these trees out of there. The utilities agreed also that we would educate our construction crews and our right-of-way crews on fire prevention to begin with and fire suppression in the event that we were the cause of starting a small fire. And what the protocol was in terms of getting the Forest Service engaged and advising other stakeholders in the area. They would provide that training 
And if we had the plan, had the training, did all these good things, they would agree to limiting our liability. And uh, for those that may not be familiar with some of the equipment that we use uh, for clearing our rights away, this is, this is pretty typical in the Muskeg uh, boggy area in our province. Um, more common are mowers with tires rather than tracks, and we use the skidoos and the, or the you know, ATVs and everything else everybody else uses to actually patrol them. Many of the right-of-ways we can patrol with a, with a 4x4 truck, and we also use helicopters. I, we've heard a lot about herbicide use in a lot of jurisdictions, and herbicide use in our province is a non-issue. Uh, we're highly agricultural, so we have the support of the farm community, which is, carries the vote, by the way, in our province, so we don't have a problem using herbicides. We have a problem using them if we're not responsible in use of them. You know, they, we have to be licensed like everybody else does, and uh, they're extremely sensitive about waterways, and there's a lot of restrictions in their use, but we do not have a problem using them. Um, we've, been, we've been fighting that battle for the last 40 years and, and feel like we're well on top of responsible use of herbicides. We just don't have an issue. And like I said, a lot of the transmission in the remote area are patrolled by air, so this danger tree thing is, is something you can't do from the air. You need to have folks on the ground doing a mile-by-mile -mile ground patrol. This is very typical of the types of situations that got us into trouble prior to this agreement. I mentioned earlier a lot of the stakeholders in the forest areas didn't talk to each other. Now here's a case where the utility went through and put a right-of-way through and everything was just fine and dandy. Everything's under control. Then along comes an oil and gas facility with a road construction into a well site and uh, we didn't talk to each other and realize that what what leaving these tall trees here is just created was a real hazard to our line because this is in a very high wind area. And you, you guessed it. You absolutely know what the next slide's going to look like, don't you? <laughs> yep, pickup sticks. <clears throat> and that's, that, those situations happen more often than not, and these are absolutely candidates for, for a fire hazard. Uh, just talking to each other and getting the Forest Service to, to help coordinate the communications between the stakeholders, we would avoid those situations now. So I want to tell you a little bit about the reaction to the draft proposal that was sent up the ladder with the provincial government authorities and with our senior management. Neither one of them liked what we were doing. Um, the Forest Service Senior management said, nope, we want the utilities to pay all the costs. Just apply the regulations. If they start a fire, send them the bill. Um, a lot of the Forest Service areas didn't see a problem. Others thought it was a huge problem. So terrible inconsistency. But it wasn't really adopted with open arms yet. Our senior management said, 
Yeah, that's really nice what you guys did. That's really cool. But this is going to cost us more money. It's a commitment for future years. And uh, we're not interested. These are, these are government trees. Why are we even talking to them about government trees? Uh, very legitimate concerns, but we're right back pretty much where we started. Wisdom prevailed. Like, what is the objective here? The objective was to have a win-win deal. So we could limit our liability, so we didn't have this mentality happening. We could limit our liability if we did something that was responsible in the eyes of the Forest Service and the public. So back, back we went with our tails between our legs and started talking again. And we did manage to hammer out, it took two years, but we did manage to hammer out an agreement that our senior management groups were willing to sign. We agreed on our definitions. We agreed on what tree-free was. We agreed what a hazard tree removal program would look like. We agreed on the standards. We agreed on what in equipment, we firefighting equipment and emergency equipment we would have on all our contract crew, um, support crews. We'd agreed to have you know fire backpacks and shovels and, and some training. So we agreed to all that good stuff. They liked that. This bear liked that. Everybody liked that. And uh, they, they helped assist again with, with kind of in special areas where they knew there was a high fire, fire hazard area. They, they agreed to work with us and help us prioritize those areas, which they didn't do before. Um, the area manager then was, as we engaged them and got them involved in the conversation, were more, were, were more open to signing these agreements because without the area manager signing them, the guy above them sure wasn't going to. So we got these guys engaged and they saw the wisdom of let's do the responsible thing here together and forget about who's paying for it. Let's just do what's right. Uh, once we got over that, then we, were, then we started making some progress. And uh, we did provide them with plans and progress reports that they'd never seen before, and they felt pretty good about that because they knew it was going on in their districts for a change. And uh, <clears throat> if we needed a revision, uh, for some reason or another, uh, it used to take a year to get anybody's attention to actually get a revision to any kind of a work plan or anything approved within the forest area. These guys agreed to, to get her done within a couple weeks because they knew that we had crews to schedule and things to do. Uh, so it was a much better working relationship. The Forest Service also had to agree to come and audit. They had to agree to audit the plan as it was proposed before they approved it. So it just wasn't a rubber stamp approval. They have to actually go out and audit it to make sure that what we saw is a responsible thing to do, and they agree. And likewise, when we're done the work, they go out and post-audit, spot check it, but they do go out and do a post-audit to make sure we actually did what we said we were gonna do within that five years. If we don't, the fire agreement is null and void. Any fire on our right-of-way that's caused from trees on our right-of-way or easements, is not, it's not included in this agreement. If we cause a fire on a right-of-way, we pay. Pretty simple. Most of the common sense stuff that we agreed to is just common sense. Like, when, when you get right down to it, this thing was really 
kind of simple at the end of the day and mostly common sense. And it was amazing to me. It took two years to get there. Just utterly amazing. And there was a lot of hours and a lot of discussions and a lot of work. But basically common sense. <clears throat> uh, pretty simple. Not very high tech. This is how we mark the trees. The guy's sitting in the back of the room. This is what he does. Goes out and marks the trees. Five years from now, those better be on the ground. <laughs> That's pretty much how it works. <clears throat> and uh, they'll come out and audit to make sure that those are candidate trees. And uh, if they approve the plan, then five years from now, they better be on the ground. Or you better pray there's no fire in that area. And like I said, for eminent danger, trees will send a crew out there and they'll get taken care of right away, of course. Who wants a fire? So the obvious trees, the obvious hazards, pretty common sense, got to go. The, the occurrence of fires has dropped significantly since this agreement's been in place. So obviously, the work planning, the, the, the patrolling and planning, and actually removing of these known hazard trees is having an effect. There's been, there's been a really significant drop in the occurrence, the frequency of fires. Here's the bottom line. Here's, here's the only thing that the bean counters and the engineers and the utility senior management really, really, really looked at carefully. This is when we got them on board. This is when they saw that $40 million bill show up at the beginning of the presentation. This is what got their attention. This really got their attention. We were able to limit our liability as follows. Any area that we had submitted and received approval for the plan and the work had been completed within, within the five years and if there was a fire in that area, um, we were, if there was a fire caused by a power line, by a tree that had fallen in the line that wasn't even marked, doesn't matter if it was marked, if we'd been through the area, it's within the five years and we kept our commitments, uh, we're going to get a bill for 25% of the fire suppression costs up to $50,000. Now, I don't know how many of you have signed the invoices for the fire bombers. Any few of you signed invoices for fire bombers? You don't want to. Like, they're really big bills, and they add up in a real big hurry. So this is a laughable amount of money when it comes time to fighting fires. Just, it's a joke. So... They were pretty happy about that. They, oh, fifty thousand dollars instead of forty million. There's a little difference. Hmm. And then where we have submitted and received approval for the plan and not committed the work, we haven't even gone out and cut the trees yet. If there's a fire caused by a tree that we marked or unmarked, once the plan's approved, it doesn't matter. It goes down, hits the line. Our maximum liability is hundred thousand dollars. Now, Nelson, would they like that in California? No. So this is pretty significant, and this, this woke up senior management, and, and now they sign it. They can't get their pens out fast enough to sign these agreements. Again, non-compliance with any part of this agreement, this is all void. Now, 
in 18, 19 years since we really kind of got on board with this program, this transmission company, this AltaLink that we're talking about here, has paid out about $60,000 total for fire suppression costs due to trees. So A, the program's working because we're eliminating the frequency of risk, right? Some, something's changed. Two trees fell in the line. One of them, I don't really feel should have been paid. One of them was a tree came down on the line, pulled the line down, a bear got involved, uh, got himself on fire with this tree laying on the line, took off, ran into the forest and started a fire. And the utility ended up, we ended up paying eight, about $18,000 for that fire. Now, that was, I'm not sure why we paid that, but, you know, I'm sure the bear appreciated it. And the other one was just a violation of the agreement. So we ended up paying thirty-five dollars or $38,000 for that. But that's not bad in the course of 18 years. And we've got 17,000 miles of transmission line here we're talking about. So it's, it was significant. Like I say, all this goobly gop up ahead of this didn't really matter to senior management until we got to this part. Now, there is some concern about dispute management. Uh, we've never really had a big dispute. Uh, we do know that senior management are the parties at the VP and deputy minister level are the ones that are going to do any dispute management, so it left us at the ground level out of this conversation. If there was a dispute about payment or anything else, uh, none of them have ever gone to the courts for this utility. Never had in 18 years. One of them hit the courts. That's pretty significant, I would say. Uh, we talked earlier about the use of the right-of-way for fire breaks. This never happened before, 20 years ago. Never happened prior to that, where the Forest Service and the utility actually got their heads together and say, this is a high fire risk. We can use this right-of-way as part of the fire break. And because we actually talked to each other as professionals, um, this happens in the higher fire risk areas now. So many areas we don't have big risks and a lot of utilities are the same. They don't have big risks with transmission or distribution. Other areas we have tremendous risks. Um, a lot of our areas where transmission lines service oil and gas industry in our province uh, end up being fairly remote. So it adds to the importance and significance of not having fires or any other kind of problem out in our right-of-way because of the remote remoteness of the areas. Um, the, there's the birds that you don't let on your line. Well, they come up to our country and, and he's sitting on our line now. So if you would like him to come back, we'll send him your We'll send them back. This agreement took two years to develop. Um, it took a year to get approval from my senior management, and it was all primarily based around this dollar amount. That, that's pretty much what drove the, the nail in the, in the agreement. Um, wildfire risk reduced. We've had two incidents. This slide is not correct. There's actually two incidents uh, to the tune of about $60,000. I think both parties 
and the regulators feel that this is a pretty responsible program because it seems to be working. I think the evidence for that is just in how many dollars have been paid out and the reduction in the frequency in the fires. And like I say, it's rather remarkable to me that we spent many days on an airplane back and forth talking to government officials. Uh, it took two years to develop something that seems kind of common sense and fairly simple, and it is. Believe me, it is. Um, stakeholders remain fairly committed to this. Uh, there is noise within the government regulators of, let's go back to just sending the bill back to the utilities, and I believe senior management and the utilities are going to push back because the evidence is there that this is working for the utility ratepayer and the public who are the same people. It, this program works, so like why, why are we having this conversation again? Uh, it is a win-win agreement. And uh, the good news is that other agencies are using it. Our pipeline facilities, we've got tens of thousands of miles of pipeline in our province. Oil and gas facilities, huge, huge rights away. This agreement has now been offered to them. There, there's many signatories in the oil and gas industry. And, and many of the other utilities that interface with the forested areas, such as rural electric co-ops and many distribution companies. So it has been a win-win. And for you hunters, uh, we have a few of those up there for you if you'd like to come up. So nothing new and no, nothing really rocket science about this. Uh, a whole lot of common sense, a little bit of time, and a really committed uh, group of people that wanted to see something different than what was going on really is what what made this work. Um, I don't think there's any doubt that this program's going to continue in our province, even with some question about a few individuals in the, in the bureaucracy that want to see it go away. I don't think it's going to. Uh, the regulators are very happy with it. Uh, it may be a little tweaking of the amounts of the liability. $50,000, $100,000 liability is pretty low. And, you know, the regulators or the government officials may want to up that a little bit. Oh, well, still not $40 million liability. This concludes Neil Thyssen's talk, A Unique Forest Service. If you would like to learn more about utility arboriculture, you can find additional materials at the ISA web store, including the Utility Specialist Certification Guide and the Best Management Practice for utility pruning of trees. If you would like to receive CEUs for listening to this podcast, the code is SA6373. Again, SA6373. If you have recommendations for topics to cover in future podcasts in this series, please contact the ISA at elearning at isa-arbor.com. Thank you for listening to this episode, which was brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. This is Tom Smiley at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory, reminding you to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another episode of Science of Arboriculture. Trees in every country. Trees.
you know we can work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge traditional skills and modern techniques whatever language you speak you have a world to offer every day climb with the ISA 